0: Father, thank you for your mercy, thank you for your grace, thank you for allowing us to come before you, and we do so, Father, in the confidence um, of the work that your Son has accomplished on the cross, being forgiven by the blood that he has shed, Father, and as such, we ask that your word would speak to us, that we would be able to humble ourselves before you. We ask that the Spirit would help us to stay focused this morning, to stay attentive to what you would have us hear, and that you would help us to respond to your instruction, Father, that you would help us to be sanctified this morning, edified and equipped, so that we may glorify you, Father. We ask this, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so we have taken a break from Second Samuel uh, to cover a variety of topics and now we are back into our journey through Second Samuel and we are in second Samuel 19 verses 9 through 40. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to second Samuel 19 verse 9. Um, open it up there, open up your app, whatever if you Need a Bible? We have Bibles scattered uh, throughout, underneath the seat. If you can't find one, there's a stack in the back corner. You can grab one there. If you need a Bible, you know somebody who needs a Bible. Take a Bible, keep it, give it away. Um, feel free to do so. We left off with the death of Absalom and David's mourning and grief over the loss of his son Absalom, whom he commanded his commanders and all of his men, all of all of his followers, to deal gently with. A command that Joab ignored. Today, we continue with David beginning the process of restoration and reconciliation for the nation of Israel, and it won't go smoothly for David, not as easy as he would perhaps like it to be. And while there are many events between now and the end of 2 Samuel, the main thrust, the main point, as it has been for both First and 2 Samuel, is the sovereignty of God. Remember, David is in this predicament because of God's judgments upon him for his sin that he committed with Bathsheba and against Uriah, both which were a result of him despising the word of God. Yet God, in his faithfulness for the sake of the covenant that he made with David back in chapter 7, allows David to keep the kingdom, though the sword will never depart from it while he is alive. In our passage today, we'll see how David gets the ball rolling for his return to Jerusalem. And then we will look at three different men who interact with David. Two of these men interact with him at the Jordan River, and one interacts with him in Jerusalem. And as we do so, we must remember who David is. He is king over God's nation, Israel. He is the Lord's anointed. And he is to us today a type of Christ, a shadow of the true Christ of the king, of the true king, Jesus So as we look at these three men, let us consider what we may learn from them and how we ought to live and how we are not to live as it relates to our King Jesus Christ. The first one serves as a reminder of God's grace, and he also serves as a warning. The second man will help us with our perspective on life, specifically with our contentment. And the third provides for us an example on how to finish our life well. So let's begin, and we'll read verses 9 through 15. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies, and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house, when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants." So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgah to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. These verses here provide the backdrop of our passage uh, this morning, as well as the beginnings of trouble that will eventually escalate into another conflict for David later in chapter 20. Israel, and when we speak of Israel here, we're talking about the ten tribes of Israel, not the whole nation, not all twelve tribes, but the ten tribes of Israel. They desired the king to come back. King David likewise desires to go back. But he doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem as a conqueror. He wants to come back as a leader of the people, as a prince who returns with honor and love. He wants to be asked back. So he gets two respectable men, priests that we're familiar with, Zadok and Abiathar, key members who helped David during the revolt of Absalom. He gets them to speak to the elders of Judah, to ask for the elders of Judah to ask for David to come back. And to help in that, David has made Amasa general over his army in place of Joab, because Joab apparently has been demoted, quite possibly, for his actions in regards to Absalom. So once the men of Judah ask for David to come back, the king begins his journey home. Therefore, Judah comes out to Gilgah to meet the king and help him and his people cross the Jordan. Among the men of Judah come two of interest. So let's now go ahead and read about the first one. Verses 16 through 23. And Shammai, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure." And Shammai, the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shemai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now Shemai is not new to David. If you recall from chapter 16, as David was fleeing from Jerusalem and fleeing from Absalom, Shammai followed David and his men and cursed them. He hurled insults at David as well as stones at David and his men, his mighty men that were with him. He spoke lies, blaming David for the death of Saul and the bloodshed that was in the house of Saul. Even then in chapter 16, Abishai wanted to cut Shammai down, but David in his mercy and humility refused to. And now here on David's return, Abishai really wants to see Shammai's head roll. But David is focused on reconciling and uniting a divided nation. If David were to cut Shammai Shammai down now, though he has every right as a king to do so, it could perhaps set a dangerous precedent to all those who followed Absalom. Does death await me also? And David recognizes that the arrogance, the arrogance of Abishai's request, which is typical of Abishai and his brother Joab, this is why David distances himself from them by declaring, verse twenty-two: "What have I to do with you, you sons? Referring, including his brother Joab in this, you sons of Zeruiah, should this day should you be an adversary to me? See, David is seeking mercy; he's seeking clemency. And Abishai, he desires bloodshed." David knows that he's now, once again, king over Israel. What is there to be gained by killing Shammai? David wants to reestablish his throne by mercy, not fear. David wants to draw his enemies to him, not away from him. And let's be honest, Shammai was certainly an enemy. He didn't hide it from David when Absalom took over. And even now he confesses it before King David in verse 19. Forget what I said. Forget what I've done. And as the Lord's anointed, who has been treated as such, David, again, has it well within his right to kill Shammai, which Shammai acknowledges. It's why he has come to the king so quickly. He didn't wait for the king to get to Jerusalem. He hurried out with the tribe of Benjamin, with a thousand men, to meet David, to be the first one there, to make a point. Likewise, those of you who are still hostile to Christ, whether in unbelief or in deeds, you must take advantage now the opportunity that is before you, and you must hasten yourself and go and meet Jesus now, before Jesus crosses the Jordan, before Jesus returns to his holy city. For when Christ returns, or when death overcomes you, it will be too late. You must, as Shemaiah does here, confess your sins and seek forgiveness. Yes, you may have done horrible things, you may have even blasphemed the holy name of God in word and deed as Shammai did with the Lord's anointed in chapter 16. But God is gracious and his forgiveness is there for you in Christ Jesus, the son of David. Colossians 1, through 20, for in him, that's Christ, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. John, in 1 John 2, 2, is more explicit. He says, he, that's Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, meaning Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice. It's the, that's what the big word propitiation means. Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice. He has diverted the wrath of God from us, who fully deserve it, to himself. He has stood in our place for our sin. Therefore, because of this truth, let us do as King Jesus tells us to do in John 6.40 and look upon the Son of God and believe in him so that we may have eternal life. Now, while Shammai reminds us of the grace of God through the compassion of God's anointed one, King David, he also serves as a warning. See, Shammai is repenting and confessing loyalty to David ultimately out of selfishness. It's for his benefit. It is, it is for his gain to do so. Shammai is not truly loyal, but he does desire to avoid the wrath of the rightful king of Israel. He's only repenting because the previous prince Absalom is dead, and King David is returning in the fullness of his reign. I say this because in First Kings 2, we read of Shammai's death at the hand of Solomon for his disobedience to the king. Shammai there is told, "'Don't leave the city.'" Shammai leaves the city anyway, perhaps because he's still hoping that the reign of power would return to the house of Saul. See, some people profess faith in Christ in the midst of a traumatic season in their life, though they do so not because they believe, but only because they want to keep on living. For a moment, for a season, they recognize the power of God, but they don't submit to it beyond their desire to survive. Others profess their faith simply because the winds of society have shifted to favor those who claim to believe. Those who profess faith in this manner are like the seeds of Matthew 13 that fell along the path, or those who fall, fell on the rocky soil, or those who fell among the thorn, thorns. For a moment, faith is professed, yes, but it lacks conviction. It lacks true belief, and they are eventually found out. Consider the words of uh, Psalm 78, verses 34 through 37, describing how the people of Israel were brought to repentance by the wrath of God, but it was repentance that was impotent, that was powerless. The psalm says, When he killed them, they saw him. They repented and saw God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Profession was there, but obedience was not. Shammai saw earnestly David. He hurried out to King David. He professed strongly with his mouth and flattered King David. But when Solomon was on the throne, when opportunity presented itself, Shammai lacked obedience to the king, even though he was warned. He lacked faithfulness in his heart, and true motives were found wanting, and he suffered death because of it. Therefore, let us today be sure of our own faith. Let us be sure of our covenantal faithfulness to the new covenant, that we are producing fruit and keeping with, lest, with repentance, lest we end up like Shemai, or we end up like those of Matthew 7. who. At the end of days, we'll come to the Lord saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do these wonderful and marvelous things in your name? And Jesus said to them, I never knew you. Now, let me take a moment to address this issue. How do we know? How do we know if we're saved? How do we know if we're truly saved? Where is assurance found? Or is it just some mystery we just don't know until we get to the end? Well, it's not a mystery. It can be found. This is the whole point of the letter of 1 John. 1 John 5, 13, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, not that you may kind of have a good guess that you know or you have good odds or good chances, no, but that you may know, like you may know for certain that you have eternal life. So is assurance, is it something that we can know simply by looking within ourselves, by feeling it within our hearts? Or Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Otherwise, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we can't look within ourselves. It's not that you won't feel it in your heart, but your heart alone by itself cannot be trusted. You need other things beyond how you feel inside of yourself. So where do we look then? Well, to each other. Consider the two ordinances that we are commanded to observe, baptism and communion. In order to do these two things, you have to be part of a community. You have to be doing life with others. These are acts of a community. They are not private acts committed by individuals, but those who belong to a local body. When you are baptized, you're making a public profession of your faith that's being affirmed by a local body. When you do communion, you're recommitting your, your commitment to the new covenant within the context of witnesses and those who see you do it within a local body. This is why church membership is so valuable. Committing yourself to one local body, right? Not multiple, like not just one church this week, another church next week, another church the week after that, then another church on the fourth Sunday, and then maybe you revisit one of those churches on the fifth Sunday. You commit yourself to one body, not simply to do ministry with, but to do life with, life done through the church and outside of the church. By walking with other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, the Spirit will use them to correct you, to encourage you, to rebuke you, and to train you in righteousness, all the while holding you fast to the confession that you claim and that you made public at your baptism, of which they were witnesses too. And gathering virtually does not count. We're not called to non physical relationships. A non physical spirituality is a form of Gnosticism, a second century heresy. The everlasting life is not going to be a life of of non-physical bodies. We are called to dwell in physical bodies and to be physical beings, to have physical relationships with one another. So let us embrace one another face to face as we are transformed in the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. That's where assurance is found. So if you want to make sure that your profession is not just simply profession, Do life with your brothers and sisters in Christ, grounded in the word of God, and the spirit, the word, will affirm you. Now, back to our main point this morning. Having looked at Shammai and seen how there's opportunity for those of you who are still at odds with God to receive mercy and forgiveness, and being warned by his example as well, that profession isn't enough, but rather we must produce obedience in keeping with that profession of faith, let us now look at our second person today, Mofabrishet. Verses 24 through 30. And Mephebosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephebosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, did you, my servant deceive me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those to eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided, you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. You remember Mephibosheth, Second Samuel 4, we read of the son of Jonathan, that's Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, he became lame because the nurse that was carrying him dropped him in haste as she fled upon hearing the news that Saul and his sons had been slain in battle. Then in chapter 9, we read of David in covenantal faithfulness for the sake of Jonathan, inviting Mephibosheth to dine at his table. And in doing so, he also gives him land and he gives him servants, of which Ziba was the head servant. Then back in chapter 16, when David is fleeing uh, Jerusalem, it was Ziba who greeted David, not Mephibosheth. And at that moment, Ziba told David Mephibosheth had betrayed the king. And as such, David gave Ziba control of the land. But now here's Mephibosheth before David. He is disheveled. In fact, he has the appearance of a man who has undergone great mourning, and such great mourning that he's actually identified himself with those who are unclean per the law, which makes Ziba's earlier uh, comments suspect. Mephibosheth appears to have been taken advantage of by Ziba in the midst of chaos and confusion. He has been treated wrongly, not only by Ziba, but also by David, who assumed the worst of Mephibosheth and was quick to pass judgment on him as David fled Jerusalem. Yet Mephibosheth doesn't care. He only cares for his king. He cares only for the Lord's anointed. And as such, he demands nothing. He's not shaking his fist. He's not raising his voice. He's not insisting on his rights or what he is owed or what he is deserved at least not beyond the only thing that he admits to deserving, which in verse 28 he acknowledges is, I deserve death. That's the only thing that I deserve. Therefore, though the king has granted Mephibosheth some of the property, Mephibosheth does not desire it. He tells the king, Ziba can keep all of it. For how can it compare to the blessing that Mephibosheth has already received? Mephibosheth here It is an example to the faithful believer in how we ought to regard our own lives, our own situations, our own lots in life. It shows us how we are to be content. This is um, a mentality that Paul himself shares with Mophabrishet, something that he speaks to the elders of Ephesus Ephesus at his farewell speech in Acts 20, verse 24, where Paul writes, I do not account my, excuse me, Luke wrote about Paul speaking, I do not account my life of any value, Nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Then later, while in prison, Paul pens these words, Philippians 1.20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. The main concern for Paul is the honor of Christ, not his situation, not his life, not his well-being. More explicitly in Philippians 3, 8 through 11 Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Right? That means everything. There's no asterisk there. There's no, well, this is dear to me, no nothing. Everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, doesn't demand good health. And the faithful believer doesn't simply demand, but doesn't even expect these things, for they have been counted as lost. Either we have these things, or we don't have them. And if we do have them, we're certainly all grateful for them, but we must not let them become a snare to us, and we must steward them faithfully, avoiding laziness, or becoming a glutton, or taking on some other prideful, foolish behavior. And if we don't have these things, we continue to remain grateful, but we don't allow our lack to become a snare to us, and and we don't allow ourselves to um, live with bitterness or envy or jealousy in our hearts. We continue to live faithfully. And why do we do this? Because regardless of our situation, we are content. Because we have all that we need. This is the whole point of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. Why? Whether I'm cursed or blessed, I can do all things because I am content. God's grace is enough. Like Mophaboshet, we are deserving of death. But our king, Jesus, has welcomed us to sit at his table for his sake. And that's enough. There is nothing here, there's nothing on this earth in this time in this age that can add to that. There's nothing to be gained. Now, Let me speak to a caveat for Americans when it comes to our rights and freedoms. Since we live in a democratic society, this is unique in world history, um, where we live in a society where people are supposed to have some sort of say in how things are done. This does not mean, even though we don't demand rights and freedoms, this does not mean that we cannot be involved in politics, nor does it mean that we shouldn't take stand on issues. We absolutely should, especially if we have the power and the privilege and the responsibility to do so but we must not allow it to negatively impact our faith or detract from our witness. When rights or freedoms don't go our way, when they are perhaps taken from us, we don't panic. We can lament, surely, but we don't panic as those with no hope, no future. We keep on living faithfully by recognizing the outcome is the same for all of us, either death or the return of Christ to restore all things. How we live is more important than the circumstances in which we live in, right? How we live is more important than the circumstances in which we live in. For we are judged by how we live in regard to our king, not by how free and prosperous our society is or isn't. A person who is content in the eternal truths of Scripture is a person who builds his or her life upon the rock and not sand like the foolish person of Matthew 7 does. Regardless of how the winds of society blow and what tragedies may or may not occur, that person is stable and steadfast. Why? Because their satisfaction is not rooted in the things of the world. It's not rooted in their circumstance of which they find themselves in this world, but it's rooted in the everlasting, unchanging Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And somebody being anchored on the truth like this is sorely missed in our society. And a society that's constantly reacting, knee-jerk reactions to every little thing that happens. The church needs to stay grounded, needs to stay faithful, and not be so concerned about circumstances, but more concerned about our faithfulness to Jesus Christ and his word. Now, Mephebosheth doesn't stop there as an example. Not only does he exemplify a fantastic attitude towards the Lord's anointed, but he even desires to bless his enemy, Ziba. In verse 30, he tells the king, Ziba, the man who has wronged him, his enemy, well, he could just have it all. Like, is not just grateful for the fact that David has spared his life and invited him to the table, but Mephibosheth is extending blessing to others. Again, because all that Mephibosheth is concerned about is that his Lord, the Lord's anointed, has returned. And that is... Mephavishth's primary concern, an attitude that's not merely modeled for us, but one that we are commanded to hold to in regards to how we are to bless our enemies. Matthew 4 4, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us not demand anything from God. Yes, of course, we can ask God of things. We ought to ask God of things. He loves us, He's a loving Father. But we do so from a position of humility, and we do so with an attitude of gratitude, being fully satisfied with the will of God, being fully satisfied that when God says no, praise God. When he says yes, praise God. So we praise him in in, in all circumstances, regardless of how he answers our prayers, even our most desperate prayers. But we must not insist that we deserve or have earned anything from God. If we do, then we find ourselves in the company of a man like Shemai, being pe- people who are faithful to Christ purely for our advantage and not for repentance, not for holiness. So let us now look to our third and final man of this episode, Barzile, uh, verses 31 through 40. Now Barzile, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogolim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzile was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanam, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzile, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzile said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of sinning men and sinning women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him, come o- let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, "'Kimham shall go over with me, "'and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, "'and all that you desire of me I will do for you.' "'Then all the people went over the Jordan, "'and the king went over, "'and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, "'and he returned to his own home. "'The king went on to Gilgah, "'and Kimham went on with him. "'All the people of Judah, "'and also half the people of Israel, "'brought the king on his way. "'Barzillai is a faithful man to the Lord's anointed, "'and he is rewarded rightly.' Now look at verse 33, where King David says to Barzilei, come with me across the river, and I will provide for you. Ponder this for a moment. We, as Americans, we struggle to see the significance of David's words here. Uh, a King, the monarchy, that's just a totally foreign concept to us. You know, we look at England in confusion, uh, because it's just not part of our culture or our democracy. Uh, monarchy is it's a foreign concept for us. But this is a king and not just any king that's speaking here to Barzillai. Imagine yourself as a 11th century, uh, 10th century, 9th century Israelite who's reading this account. You're serving under the king of Israel, you read this account, and you hear King David, right? Now, Now he's the king, but he's not just any king. This is King David, this is the king of whom all the other kings of Israel, every single one that follows them, they are measured to the standard of King David. King David is the king of righteousness and justice. In fact, the only king to ever override the greatness of King David is the true king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, right? But all other kings are measured to King David. So here we are, you're reading this, and then the king says, come over with me. You would be thinking, why does Barzillai get this privilege? Why is the king treating Barzillai so well? Why is he honoring him? Why has he extended this incredible honor to Barzillai. See, I think when we, in this day and age, read of David in these accounts, we focus on David. And Barzillai is just like this person over here, "Ah, he just kind of comes and goes. But this is a significant thing. If you're reading this, when this was written, you're like, whoa, King David has said this to Barzillai. Why? Who's Barzillai? Because I need to know who Barzillai is, because I need to know how I need to live in light of of, of being, so I can be commended like Barzillai was. So let us not be so quick to pass over Barzillai. This event is included for a reason. So to hear Barzillai, to be honored this way, is meant to cause us to pause and to ponder the actions of this man who is afforded such an honor. This is a man who faithfully and sacrificially provided for the Lord's anointed and his people when in need he didn't simply give out of obedience. In fact, Brazile had no obligation to the king to give anything during a time of need, but yet he did. And as such, the king wants to reward generously for his generosity. Likewise, we should always be willing to pay, honor, uh, to pay and honor those whom pay and honor is due. Romans 13, 7, Paul reminds us of this. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Barzillai's provision for the king when he fled Absalom is an example to how we ought to provide today for the people of God as Barzillai did for the people of the Lord's anointed. In 2 Corinthians nine six seven, 7, Paul tells us that when we do give, when we do provide, like Barzillai, we must do so not under compulsion, but cheerfully. Paul writes, the point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or, comp- or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And it's not a new teaching that Paul is pulling on. It's pulled from the Old Testament, Proverbs 11, 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. And one of the ways we know Barzillai did so cheerfully and not under compulsion or reluctantly is his response to David's reward to him. Barzillai desires not to gain glory or to be compensated for his offering. He was satisfied in simply serving the king and his people. Likewise, we too ought to find joy and fulfillment in providing for the Lord's church and his people when we give. And if we do, we will be rewarded accordingly. After all, what we have ultimately has been given by God, and we are called to steward it faithfully. And when our king returns, he will reconcile the books, and he will reward the servants who were faithful with his belongings, just as David is rewarding Bazila here. Consider the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 as just one example of this. And joyfully, when we give joyfully, it does not necessarily mean that we give easily. Oftentimes, giving is not an easy thing to do. Oftentimes, giving, providing for the church is not done easily, but it is to be done joyfully. And they are done joyfully because we give not for our own gain, but simply because it serves the Lord. Kind of like the attitude of Mephibosheth. It serves the Lord, it pleases the Lord. And it's the Lord who we care about. He is our concern. We count everything lost. So to give it up for the purpose of Jesus Christ, as Paul would say, it's like, why wouldn't I give it up? I've already counted it lost. It's not mine anyway. And I'm seeking to attain the resurrection through Christ. So I seek to build up the body of Christ. And that helps us to be faithful servants. When we seek to build up the body of Christ, his kingdom, and not our own kingdom, it helps us to remain humble. It helps us to remain faithful. He removes the snares of temptation in our lives. This is an idea that a man like Shammai did not understand, but an idea that Mophebosheth and Barzille, in their faithfulness, exhibited in their own behavior. Yet, despite David's offer to Barzile, the old man refuses and asks his son, Kimham, to receive it instead. Barzile wants to die in peace. Though honor and glory are offered, he seeks it not. He's not trying to grab on to his youth. He's not trying to remain young. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He knows he's too old to really enjoy it. He can't smell, he can't taste. It's not because of COVID, it's because of old age. The older you get, things start to fall apart. Sometimes sooner for some of us, later for others of us. And in his humility, he recognizes his time has passed. He doesn't try to fight it. He's not trying to think, no, no, I'm, I can still do it. No, he's like, I'm going to die. I'm 80. I can tell I'm going to die because most of my body isn't working the way it should be working. Rather, he welcomes death. He's not trying to run from it. He's not living in fear. He's just doing life. He's, I mean, from the fact that he can't taste, smell, or hear very well, I'm not quite sure why he's helping a king cross a river. I feel like if he falls off whatever he's riding or if he's not, if he slips, I feel like that could be it. I feel like he's the old man that when he falls off the ladder, breaks his hip. Boy, you know? I mean, that's the reality of life. But he's still living faithfully. And, he, and he's fine with somebody else taking his place. And he does so without grumbling. He doesn't complain about it. He's like, my time has come. I'm not going to take up this opportunity just to be selfish. Let Kim Ham take my place place. Kim Ham, we'll read later, he ultimately could say there's a, a, a village, a place that is named after him. So likewise, let us pray that as our time near nears its end, if we are so fortunate to know when it's going to end, because some of us, you're not going to know when it's going to come. Some of us, we, are, we have the privilege, the blessing to live a long life, and you can kind of start feeling your body go. Others of us, we just won't know, right? Brain aneurysm, blood clots, car accidents, some other kind of tragedy. doesn't matter what your age is, your life is snuffed out like that. But if we do know as our time is nearing in and that we can recognize it, let us pray that we are okay with it. Let us be ready for it. Let us be ready to have others to take our place. Let us live lives in such that we don't live to leave a legacy. We're not caring about, we're not caring about making a name for ourselves. We care about the Lord's anointing, Christ himself being glorified. So having the privilege of looking back on the lives and interactions of these three men with the Lord's anointed back in the 10th century BC, let us today in the 21st century AD, let us consider our actions and our motives. Do we live in such a way that when our King and Savior returns and crosses the river that separates heaven and earth, will we be ready Do we spurn the ways of the world and mourn its state as Mophebosheth mourned the reign, the short reign of Absalom? Or do we think there will be opportunity as Shammai found opportunity? Thing is, though, unlike Shammai, when the Lord returns, there is no opportunity left. When you hear the trumpet call, it will be too late. Or if God calls your soul to cross that river at a moment's notice, there is no time for repentance. The foolish virgins of Matthew 25 thought they had time to get oil from the marketplace, but they did not, and they missed out. So let us then live as Barzile and Mephebosheth lived, faithfully, gratefully, contented with our lot in life, seeking not to glorify ourselves, but to serve the king, so that when the king does return, we will hear him say, just as he says in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servants. At this time, we are going to go to a communion as we commit ourselves again to the new covenant, as we commit ourselves before the body of Christ, before others, as we walk in faith before our King, Jesus Christ. We're going to come to the table, partake of the elements that he has prepared for us. Jared will prepare for them. I will pray, bless the elements. After that, you will take a moment to pray yourselves, confess any sins, um, have the Spirit search you, seek you if you're holding on to anything abstain from the table, let's talk about it, let's get you to the proper place. All right. Now when I say that, I'm not saying you have to be free of sin, but you do have to be free of willful, unrepentant sin. Right? You might be struggling with sin right now, give that up to Christ, confess it, ask him to help you in repentance, and may the elements be a gift to you, a blessing to you that strengthens you and encourages you to walk faithfully this week. And then when you are ready, come up, take the elements, take them back to your seat, and then uh, consume them as you are ready. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to come before you to hear your word. We thank you that you are patient. We thank you that you allow so much grace for us to, um, we, we mess up, Father. We sin. We are ignorant. We are arrogant. Um, we are prideful. Some of us might even still be blind, Father. Father. I ask that your grace would help those who are blind to see the truth, that they would uh, come to your Lord, to, to your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they would confess your sins here, their sins this morning, um, and that they would turn away from their lives, that they would deny themselves and follow after your Son, our King, Jesus. And Father, for those of us who are who have made that decision, help us to continue to walk faithfully, to help righteously um, before you, blameless before you, Father. We ask that you would bless these elements, the cracker and the juice, that as we come to the table, um, that we would be reminded of the work of your son on the cross, the blood that he shed for our, for the forgiveness of our sins, Father, and that it also points that he is returning, just like King David returned, Father. Jesus is returning. To help us live in light of that truth. Help us to be patient in that. Help us not to grow weary to where we um, trip or stumble or fall into temptation, but deliver us from temptation. We thank you that we have these uh, three men, Shimai, Mephibosheth, and Barzile, who lived lives uh, so long ago, Father, and that you, by the power of the Spirit, have recorded them in your eternal word so that we would be um, encouraged and warned and, and given examples on how to and how not to live. Father, we thank you for the cloud of faithful witnesses that have gone before us, that are with us now, um, and that will be after us, Father. We thank you that we, too, will be part of that, Father. And we ask that you would help us to be part of that faithful cloud of, um, of witnesses, Father, that we won't fall away, but that we would hold fast to the confession of our baptism, the confession of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, your Son, Father. Father, we ask all of these things, not for our glory, Father, but for your glory. We ask them by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.